Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, she's laughing. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Wisdom of Wins Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> Some Sorry. people really, you know what? Let's not apologize. We are here, and everybody that's here is part of our tribe. So, everybody, yes. welcome. So, those of you that are new to the podcast, welcome, welcome, welcome. Tessa is one of my longtime students slash she is the director of operations at Radically Loved slash she is the schedule guru slash author slash teacher slash coach. All of the <laughs> things slash co-host of Wisdom Wednesday. So if you're just joining us, that's who Tessa is. She is the gatekeeper. And if you're tuning in, then that, I'm just going to assume that you know who I am. Hello. Hello. <laughs> welcome, welcome everyone to <laughs> Wisdom Wednesdays. Yes. And this is a very special episode. We, Tessa and I have been talking and we thought it would be a really cool idea to do a roundup. Of, we're trying to think of a topic for Wisdom Wednesday. And I'm like, you know what? If we're having a hard time thinking about a topic, what about if we just have some of our favorite people's wisdom on today's Wisdom Wednesday? I mean, it's genius. Right? <laughs> it's genius. That is a step above wisdom into genius dumb. Is that a yeah. word? Genius. Oh, like, yeah, zone of genius. This is the zone of genius. So we have three incredibly special people that we thought we've had in the last couple of months that we just wanted to listen to their wisdom again. So Tessa and I agreed on the three. My pick was Agape Sassanopoulos. And I just love her so much. And I read her book every day. And I'm like, okay, well, to me, this is this is easy because it was one of my favorite conversations to have to date. And um, I just thoroughly enjoyed. Tessa, why don't you share yours? Uh, it's so hard to choose, man. But you know who sticks out for me over and over again was Nedra Glover-Tawab. She... I just love the way she shows up with her whole self, with her unapologetic, this is how I'm going to move through the world, and this is how I'm going to set boundaries. And it's not aggressive. It's in a very kind, peaceful, yet straightforward way, which I just found so refreshing. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And then our... Oh, yes. Go ahead. You go. Wow, we have one more. We, yes. got, we got one more. And... I loved this book. I've recommended this book to so many people. And Chiara Alegria Hudes was also one of my favorites this year so far. I think there was so much wisdom in the conversation where she's talking about our uniqueness. Her book is called My Broken Language. And she narrates it. So if you're into Audible or audiobooks, please read this book. I mean, she's like a prolific, like... Pulitzer Prize winning 
playwright, author. She is just an incredible talent. And her storytelling is, after I, I read that book, you know, you sometimes read those books that make you feel like you can do anything. Yes. This is it. definitely, this was one of those books. And I just loved her story. And, and I loved this conversation. And I think there's some really great gems that stood out to me. And so that was also a pick that we agreed on. So I'm excited. For those of you that are just joining us, this is a compilation episode of three authors that we've had on the show that we love. And we hope that you enjoy today's episode of Wisdom Wednesday. As much as I want to believe the fantasy that I will never get older, I have to be realistic. And yes, I definitely feel very much young at heart, but there are some issues that we'll face as most Americans do by the time we get to 50. That's why I want to talk to you about AARP. AARP advocates for you and offers financial and job resources, fraud protection help, information on joining local volunteer groups, and so much more. Because AARP knows you have a lot of good years ahead, that is why I signed my mom up and I can happily say that both Tori and I are members. And here's why I used to think that AARP was just for older, more mature people. But have you ever thought about the definition of being old? Like, what does that actually mean? You know, there's so many member benefits and sometimes people might think, well, you know, I'm not of that age yet. So I'm not worried about family caregiving support yet, or I don't need driver safety tips, or I don't need an advocacy group, but you will at some point, or maybe somebody in your family does. And some of the commercial benefits are 61% average savings on prescription drugs are not covered by Medicare. You get discounts on eye exams and eyeglasses. There's discounts on thousands of hotels nationwide. So there are a lot of benefits to it. You can try the benefits for yourself. Just go to aarp.org forward slash Rosie to join for just $12 for your first year with automatic renewal. You'll get a second membership for free. Plus, AARP the magazine as a free gift. That's aarp.org forward slash Rosie. We all had to recreate our spark. We had to find it. And for me, that I am, as you said, a person who is really based on the heart and the joy and that connection, it was like living in exile. And we have a beautiful home there with a garden wonderful places to walk, but I felt so exiled. I think that is, the, I don't know if you felt that way too. So going back and diving inside and having the experience of spirit meeting me at that unhappy, frustrated place was a demonstration that prayer and aliveness of connecting with your spirit is not a theory and it's not something we should say for special occasions. But it's something that even at this very moment that the book just came out, I am called in myself to practice all the time. And uh, I wanted to read you the opening of the book, which is a quote from Raymond Carver that says, and did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. 
So that's one of the reasons I have loved your podcast and loved you, Rosie, is because radically loved is a, is an incredible mindset and statement to live by. What does that really mean? To love yourself unconditionally, to love yourself when you are having a hard time, when you are stressed, when you are worried, when you are living in the unknown, when you lose your job, when you you break up with your relationship, when someone you love passes. I mean, the incredible challenges of our lives can, or when you just simply are stuck and can you go there and meet yourself at that place? And my experience is that if we bow down and if we quieten the mind and the chatter and the to-do list and the need to always doing and come into the presence, the spirit is right there like our next breath. And my most favorite quote in the beginning of the book is that God is not a being, it is a state of being that we can all access to 24-7. But to go there, we have to come into the quietness and each one of us find that rhythm to meet the presence and to meet God, to meet the divine, and to make it so real and so grounded. I love that. And I love what you're saying about each of us finding the rhythm because that's, I can totally relate to that because it's not the same for everybody, I think, right? And you you discussed this too. And can you tell us a little bit more about the process of that, especially during, let's say, a difficult time? You talk about all these, uh, you talk about transformation, you talk about all the ways that we have an opportunity to go into that rhythm. So can you speak to that a little bit more? Well, in my own experience, and I, you know, I write a lot about my mother, as you know, especially in the preface, I start by saying my number one spiritual teacher was my mother. And my mother had a rhythm of eternity. She would never, she would hate being rushed. You know, I was brought up in Greece. My mother left my father when we, Ariana and I were teenagers. And we were raised in, in a small little apartment in Athens. And I saw my mother have this rhythm of, I call it like, like when you watch a lake, you know, that is kind of quiet and moves. And there was nothing rushed about her. There was nothing hyper about her. And throughout the years, no matter if we moved to London, we moved to uh, New York, she never allowed herself to get caught in other people's rhythms. For example, I remember specifically, and I'll give you a very specific example. When we were in New York and we were looking for apartments and the real estate agent would take us from one place to the other. And one day my mother got into an apartment and started talking to a housekeeper who happened to be Greek. And, and the woman said, we have to go now. And my mother said, right now I'm having a wonderful conversation with Maria and you can cancel the other appointment. So she honored that moment of her connection. So she didn't allow people to say, well, now we have another meeting and another meeting. She wasn't ready to move on. And in the same way, Ariana and I, my sister and I have very different rhythms. My sister is, uh, I call it my triple A, a brilliant girl. You know, she just constantly, she's not an A type. It's like triple A type. She goes and she achieves and she does multitasks and she's able to really do so many things. 
And she was always like that as a little girl. I was always wanted to play and wanted to smooch. And I wanted to be, to be I, I was more of the lover and the entertainer and wanted to have the connections and go to a place and talk to people and connect with people. And even in my own school life, I didn't really want to do this math. I hated it. I hated algebra and math. I had, I wanted to dance and do theater. As you know, I started acting. So I had to learn Agape's rhythm. And my mother would always say to me, you must honor Agape's rhythm. And to this day, I have to really watch myself. And literally, Rosie, I, when I do too much, spirit speaks to me and says, you're doing too much. And then if you get out of your rhythm, you're out of your vibration, you're out of your nature, and you're starting to get stressed. It's very hard to do because everything in this world demands from us, the signals us, do more, be more, achieve more, look at so-and-so, look at so-and-so. So to disconnect from all that and to return to you, to return to your heart and to honor yourself takes such courage and such strength. And I wrote this book because I wanted to give people permission to open up the gate, to say, you know, you are loved exactly as you are. You don't have to prove to us your value. You don't have to prove to your spirit. And if you go to your spirit in your stuckness, in your unhappiness, in your I don't feel good enough, which is the, the human condition. I don't feel I'm doing enough. And it's right, runs like an undercurrent in the river. You know, it's just like it, it depletes mm-hmm. our energies. And if you go to that and you go, help me overcome that voice and you stop. Rosie, you got to stop to get to the spirit. You got to stop and ask and listen. You know, there's this great, yes. there's this great story. I love it. God, I, I, it's, I actually, it's one of my favorite quotes in the book where there was a beautiful monk and they went into a retreat. And as a monk, he wanted to serve God. And he said, but God, what can I do to serve you more? What can I do to serve you more? I, I, in the monastery, I'm doing this and, I, and I'm meeting new people who come to the monastery. What can I do? And he had this longing to serve more. And he heard his inner voice say, shut up and let me love you. How much do you love that? I mean, that is, it's the best because it's so true. You know, I, I love what you're saying. And I think that most of the time we might get stuck in the I'm not enoughness. Like you were saying, we get into this, into that rhythm, that frequency, maybe because it's something that is consistently playing in our mind. And I love what you're saying about stopping. And I love that experience with your mom of just being in the present and just focusing and just saying, I'm going to be fully here because this is where I can fully feel joy and connection. Exactly, exactly. And I'm not going to betray this moment. Oh, because we betray the moments and then we go to bed and we're empty and bereft and depleted. And then we, we go into our phones to, to get some stimulation. Listen, I'm, I'm exactly the same. I go into these phones to get the entertainment, to get the stimulation, to get the, not the news so much, but the feeds and say, oh, I want to look at this 
and, and get my joy, but why not turn this off and listen and then pick up a book and read to yourself loud or play a piece of music that you love. I've been playing a lot, you know, The Prayer by Andrea Bocelli and Celine Dion. And you hear that and it's like your heart just opens up. And I play music that lifts me or where I was making myself up and getting ready for you. I was playing a Senorita, you know, I was playing Move This Body. I was playing um, Tonight's the Night. I was playing songs that I love that lift me. Yeah. But this is this is a practice, right? To be able to go into this rhythm and to be able to go into this space. So the people that are struggling and that perhaps like all of us had a really hard time during the pandemic. And by the way, I want to know what this was like for you to write this book during one of the most tumultuous times in our, our living history, right? Yeah. Like how are the people that are struggling right now able to get out of that rhythm and come into this awareness, this awakened moment? Yes. You know, what comes to mind, and I'll tell you how I wrote the book, I want to encourage anybody who is listening right now, please pick up a pen and get a journal or a spiral notebook. It doesn't matter what it is. Write down your prayers. And somebody said to me, you know, it's very vulnerable to write down your prayers. It, it's very vulnerable to speak your prayers too. When, when we're little kids, we take and say, thank you, God, for today. But now, help me sleep better, my soul. What is that beautiful prayer that little kids say? Help my soul. And if I die, take my soul. I don't know, remember yeah. that. Oh, prayer. now if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. take now exactly. I lay me down to sleep. Yeah, that, that one, that prayer. I didn't have it in Greece, but that's the prayer. But how many of us go to bed putting our hands in our hearts and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me life. Thank you for everything in my life. And let me awaken renewed and, and recharged, renewing my enthusiasm and finding solutions to my difficulties and my, my, my problems. And just saying all these things, it just starts to wire the brain into a mindset that you're not alone. Now, I remember one um, girl said to me once uh, we were having dinner at the house and she was going through a very hard time. And that story is in the book. And uh, I said to her, let's say her, if her name was Giselle, do you pray? And she said, Agabi, who should I pray to? I said, well, let's start with praying with your 36 point trillion cells that are making you right now. That divine intelligence, that wisdom that is moving the planets and this earth and making the sun, I mean, the mystery of life lives in you because none of anything to do with your body, you have no idea how it's made, right? You can't make a thing. So you are a miracle of life. And she said, well, let's pray to that. She was open and we started to pray and she started to cry and weep because she never opened up to her miraculousness. And it requires a certain trust. I want to use the word faith, but Faith requires that you are going to go do something and you don't know what you're going to find there. Mm. And that is the fading. 
you know, like I am going to pray and I don't know if anybody's going to listen or anything is going to happen. Am I going to open up? Am I going to hear anything? But it, when you do, the gates open up. Yes, that is so, it's so true. And one of the things that I want to share my personal experience, you know, I'm very lucky. I got a early copy of your book and I started reading it. And every morning, that's usually when I do, when I do my reading. And it was just so beautiful to be able to open the book and just start reading all the stories and really feel the love that was there. And that beautiful reminder of the prayers that are there, my ability to connect with that part of myself. Um, I'll tell you just a quick story yes. and, and I want to relate it back to the book. And during while I was preparing, you know, for the interview and I was reading, I got a call that my father had had a heart attack and he was in the hospital. This happened two weeks ago. He's okay. He had to have a open heart surgery and he's recovering. Thank goodness. But during that time, you know, you hear the bad news and it's very scary and during this assessment, we didn't know what was going on. And, you know, you're in this, you're getting some news and you're trying to gather information. My older sister and I are talking to the doctors. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And I went to bed that night knowing he's in the hospital. He has good care. And I had this really terrible dream, you know, just probably the worst possible thing that can happen. Right. I woke yeah. up in the morning and it was time for me to do my morning routine and my rituals and my prayer. And wow. I opened your book and I opened it to uh, prayer 44. It's the one that says finding comfort and grace in the loss of a loved one. I'm going to try and not get emotional. Oh my goodness. Oh, my God, that's incredible. But it starts where you write, I lost my parents three and a half months apart. My father died May 11, 2000, and my mother died August 23, 2000. Yes. It was my first experience losing loved ones, and I didn't know if I could survive it. And I just felt in that moment, oh my God, I'm sorry. That's incredible. It's an incredible story. But it was just so, so beautiful after having that dream and opening that book and then reading that prayer. The other part of this says... So when you're going through grief or loss, I relate, and there are no words to say to someone. Give them love and compassion and a safe space for them to cry. Exactly. And it was the perfect passage I needed in that moment. And so, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm not, um, not sorry at all. This is incredible. This is so, the synchronicity of that, it just moves me so much. It's really amazing. Rosie, thank you so much for sharing that. And it gave you more strength. It gave yes. you the, the, the confidence that uh, you can go through that. Yeah. And just knowing that there is, you know, so many people out there that I'm sure can relate to this. But the point was that just being able, having the privilege of reading your words to comfort me, and I'm sure millions of others that are going to read this book, it just it made me feel that rhythm that you're talking about. It just gave me that comfort. It wasn't you, anybody saying, oh, it's going to be okay. It was somebody saying, I see you. I feel you. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, 
Rosie, what you describe in the moment of shock that you hear the news that your father was taken into the hospital in a heart attack, and you don't know, are you facing life and death right there and then? That's where you need that spirit to come in and hold your hand. And the more practice we have, of that, and, and we need each other. Because for me, it's like if you said to me, what is the, the thing that you would want people to know more than anything from my life and from this book and from anything is that we're not alone. So it's called My Broken Language and it's a memoir of my youth. So my early childhood up through, I, I would say, the moment in my 20s when I became a woman, when I became an adult, um, you know, when I quote, unquote, came of age. And it's called My Broken Language because I was saturated in and surrounded by many different languages throughout my life, Spanish, English, and the hybrid form Spanglish. I was a musician, and so there were many different musical vocabularies that were part of my upbringing, from my aunt's rock and roll music and classical music to my mother's bata drumming. There were also a lot of spiritual languages surrounding me growing up. My mother, I got to witness I got a front row seat at her path towards becoming a Lukumi priestess, towards becoming a Santera, crowned in Changong. And I also went to Quaker meetings. So there were so many different languages around me. I saw the visual languages of her Afro-Caribbean altars in our living room. But I also would go to the Philadelphia Art Museum and see the visual languages of Western modern art, like Marcel Duchamp and out of all those different languages, I had to decide how I wanted to speak. And I did want to speak all my life. I wanted to. And that you did in uh, ways that we've been able to enjoy in the stories that you tell. I found so many similarities just in your story. You know, you talk about sort of growing up on two different sides of the tracks, right? Like having the two different experiences mm -hmm. with your parents. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yes. Well, I'm a mix. My background is mixed. So my father is a white Jewish man from Long Island. My mother is a brown Boricua woman from a large, diverse family, racially family, but mostly brown Boricua women. Actually, it's a very matriarchal family. And so once my parents separated at when I was a very young age, my life split in two. I was mostly raised by my mom and my stepfather, who's also a Boricua man in Philly. But I did still go visit my father. And that was out in the main line, which is a far more white area. And it's more affluent, too. So I had this very split brain. And I didn't understand why the brown Boricua family... I saw their reality held up against this kind of American dream suburbia. And it started to irk me big time as a child. There were these like wonderful magical secrets that what I, I refer to them in the book as the Perez women, because it's the Perez family. My grandmother was Obdulia, or as we called her, Abuela Julia Perez. And they did have these magical secrets. They could dance in the midst of horrific loss in a way that was cathartic. And it was awesome to me to see this. You know, I remember, you know, these were 
war on drugs times. These were HIV AIDS times. And there was so much loss, so much loss. And it was a lot of young, you know, or untimely death. And it hit close to home. And yet you pop in the tape. We hear Bachata Rosa and the dance elevates to such an ecstatic place of release. It was really gorgeous. And I was like, okay, my family out in the suburbs, they don't have that special sauce, but damn, they got like clean streets and, you know, and manicured lawns and what's going on here. What is this American project that is now my life? Yeah. God, that is where I really felt my story live in literature. I really felt that same experience in that because obviously like growing up in East LA during the LA riots in this very much immigrant family neighborhood hub in East LA and seeing the chaos that gang violence was was mm. inciting during this time. I mean, they call it you know, now they, they look back and they call it the decade of death. You know, it was just, there was a lot of just unsupervised children because all the families, all the parents worked. And so they grew up to be adolescents and they were causing havoc, right? It's sort of this disenfranchised youth experience that was causing that. Yeah. Like the chaos that was happening all around us. Meanwhile, my abuelita would host these rosarios, you know, these prayer circles mm -hmm. and have these women come together. And I sort of learned the importance of ritual, the importance of prayer. And as you're saying, like the sort of celebration and, and in the midst of going through these really scary, horrific things, there was still so much love and so much grounding in these like family traditions and pulling from faith and believing in spirituality and being able to stay grounded in the sense of, okay, even though this is happening externally, there is still something very much present that is grounding you on this earth in this plane, even though part of my story, right, is the cognitive dissonance of, okay, but if all of this is real, why is all this bad stuff happening? Mm -hmm. Right? So mm -hmm. I felt that in your realization of, okay, wait, why is this family here doing this? And why is this then facade look different from the facade of where the people that I love as well are, right? Does that make sense? Well, you know, can we talk about this notion of chaos for a second? Because yes. I could feel that there was something in the kind of physical design and landscape and architecture of the suburbs that was really, even as a child, I'm talking seven years old, eight years old, there was something about it that was in a false way trying to contain a chaos, trying to mask a chaos that is a natural component of life. You know, I don't wish chaos or suffering on anybody. However, both of those things do bring one closer to life's essence, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, these moments when... For instance, in the book, the book's plot covers four moments when, for lack of a better word, I experienced something like a possession and really lost myself. And these are moments of storytelling and writing in my life. And what happened in those moments was that I was able to ride the chaos of life in a way that, that was created like tremendous flow and power. I was able to harness 
the chaos that was around me in true to life, as opposed to this kind of suburban approach of the more order we create, the less chaos exists. I'm not sure that that actually is how the universe works, you know? So I was very distraught about my family's suffering in those times, about the losses, the struggles. And yet it felt like there was a more honest embodiment of the life and death questions that humanity deals with every day. It didn't feel like we had, honestly, we didn't have the bandwidth to be constructing facades. We had to deal with life and death every day, you know, and prayer was certainly part of that. You know, our cooking together, it was very physical, you know, Mm -hmm. the churches. Yeah, there were churches that we went to, but our bodies were our churches. You know, our, our bodies were the liturgical flesh and blood, you know, we had migrated so far in Puerto Rico, we migrated from place to place. Then we migrated to the Bronx and we migrated to Philadelphia. So our church came with us, our nature came with us. And we did, even though there was more pain and suffering, it also felt like there was more honest living. And I think that the thing about my coming of age as a child is the truth is living that honestly scared the crap out of me. Yeah. I wanted it to feel, I wanted life to feel like the suburbs, but I knew life isn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. But that to me is the meat of your story. And that's where I'm saying, like, I really felt myself reflected in that because it's the truth. It's the truth of life. That is the actual reality. We have this we, I'm just saying generally people that don't experience the chaos or, or death in that way, it's almost like this thing that doesn't exist, right? Whereas opposed to you growing up having to grapple with death and, and illness, right? And having these spiritual awakenings in your life created this deeper understanding of how we move around and how we move about in the world, that it's not all rainbows and butterflies, right? And I I hear that sometimes whenever I, I talk in this way that people say that I I sound, you know, cynical in a way, but I don't think it's cynical at all. I I think I think it's true. I think there is it's it's the reality of life. And I feel like a lot of Hispanic cultures, death is such a prevalent cornerstone to our living, our ability to live, right? My dad is always saying like in Spanish, I'm not going to be here forever. Like come visit me now that I'm alive, because when I'm dead, you know, you're, you're Mm -hmm. not going to, you know, I I don't want you crying at my funeral. Like come see me now that I'm here. And in a way, yeah, it's like, it's not really, it's a joke, but it's not a joke because it, it just reminds me of the prevalence that impermanence is a big constant in, in our daily life. And mess and muck and mud. It's, it's part of the cycle of life, right? So yeah, there's the rainbows and butterflies approach. It's like arts and crafts versus a work of magnificent chaotic art, right? Both of those are valid. But if you can never get to that ecstasy, the rainbows and butterflies, the arts and crafts, it's not enough. It's not a a fully saturated experience. And so I was scared. I was scared to be that saturated an experience. And it, 
I would watch it with a remove. I would watch the dance party at Abuela's house. I would watch the, the grief at the funerals. And I was terrified of that. Terrified. Are you kidding me? And I was even terrified to dance with my cousins because they could move in a way that was real and immediate. Mm. And I was not sure that I could move that way. I wanted to live that immediately. And through the writing, I was able to tap into that. I wasn't trying to pretend. I wasn't trying to put order on thing. I was trying to harness, you know, the energy of life that's out there that can be calm and can be a tsunami. These are all things reflected in nature, you know? Yeah. How- this is why I think that I learned a lot of this from my mother watching her path to be crowned as a priestess because the Orisha are essentially source energy. It's natural energy. And so you learn about kind of the human spirit by seeing the, the forces in nature and how they work. And it's not all rainbows and butterflies. That's part of nature. But there's also the lightning strike and there's also the, you know, the whirlwind. Yeah. What was it like for you to go into your life from that first person perspective and have to sort of examine your actual life as opposed to maybe pulling creative moments from your family members to create a play or, you know, to write an art piece, as I like to call it. What was it like for you to go into that, into this world, the world of memoir writing your story. I know that you maybe, if I'm correct, from what I remember, you started writing it at the end of 2019 or, or 2020? Yeah, 2019. Yeah. And so were you done by the time the pandemic happened or? Yes, pretty much. I, I was doing some like copy editing and stuff during that time. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people going into memoir get nervous about is memory and accuracy, right? Because you hear this all the time. And I was, I was one of the people saying it, I don't remember anything. And literally, I don't remember. I went to so, because my parents separated, I went to so many schools growing up. I don't remember all of them. I don't remember my, who my kindergarten teacher was, second, third. I don't know any of that. I don't know where I went to school from age. I can't remember the building, the, which town was I in the suburbs? Was I in the city? I don't know. So I thought, well, how can someone who doesn't know where they were from kindergarten through, you know, I remember sixth grade. That's where it kind of starts. How can you write, possibly write a memoir? But the truth is we do remember our bodies. I remember the feeling of that time of that moment. I remember this feeling, you know, and that is a form of memory. It's, you know, I'm not trying to construct a timeline of events. I'm trying to tell a story about growth. So what I discovered was that I remembered a lot more than I gave myself credit for just because I don't remember who my third grade teacher is or something, you know, but it took process and it took a lot of focus and really paying attention to what those memories were and, um, yeah. and owning them. When I, when I started the book, it was right around the time I started, I went to a, a new therapist and I said to her, well, I'm here because these cousins of mine who were in their 20s, I was very close with them and they, they all passed away, you know, when I was an adolescent and I never cried over them. And yet I thought about them every day and it affected everything in my life. So why did I not cry about them? And I think that the book was a process for me to understand how disembodied I had become from 
my own life and my loved ones. And so the process was peeling back a lot of layers, which I've heard you talk about on, on this show before, very investigative into the self very investigative. And the other thing is I'm used to writing about my family members and I do approach that with a tenderness and a care. I'm very protective of them. You know, if someone, if someone comes at you, it's one thing. Okay, fine. Whatever. If someone comes at your loved one, it's like, let's go. No, that's not happening. So I was very protective, always writing about my loved ones. When I wrote about myself, I tried to be a little harder on myself, be a little more critical about myself. And I did write some things that were very for me, ugly and painful to admit thoughts I had had, silences I had participated in, you know, internalized racism, internalized sexism, internalized ageism, even though the book is in some ways a defense of large brown bodies, because I come from a family of big plus size women, also internalized fat phobia that still existed in there. That I was wrestling with. So it was it was hard to be honest about those things. Yeah. I just want to know the process of what it was like for you to get that final, the final copy of it. It's it's done. My broken language is done. You have to give it one more read through. What was it like to read it through when it was I'm going to say done because you've talked, I've heard interviews where you talk about this before. It's like, is it ever really done, done? And I want to go into that topic here in a minute, but what was it like for you to read it from, from beginning to end when it was complete? I don't know if I've ever, have I ever read it? You know, when I read it from beginning to end was when I did the audiobook. Oh, which I also got. It's so good. If you're listening to this, the link is in the show notes. I'm going to repeat this, but you read it, right? Yeah. So yeah. Kara reads it. Please, if you're an audiobook person, listen to it. It's so good. Go ahead. Thank you. To read it like that it, out loud in the audiobook, it was challenging. I had a real appreciation for all the actors who um, have brought my work to life over my 20 year career as a playwright. And it put me right back there. Oh my gosh, there was this one scene in, I think the year is 1995 at that point. And I'm in high school, I'm in government and politics class at my at Central High School in Philadelphia. And the topic of the day was welfare queens, right? This is, this is how we referred to our sisters, our aunts, not, this is how our nation referred to our sisters and aunts. This is how the headline news referred to the matriarchs of our family, welfare queens. This was, and I had not heard the phrase before. So when it got, when that phrase got dropped in government and politics class, you know, it's like my spidey sense went up. I was like, What? what are you talking about? And it really blew my mind. The, the conservative boys in the class were like, yeah, you know, they have more babies to get a bigger welfare check. And I knew exactly which cousin of mine they were talking about. And I was, it was a real all hell's no moment for me because I was like, no, I know who you're talking about and you better not look me in the eye and say, that's why she had a child. Life, I think a series of life experience events that are personal. Um, of course, my work with clients and conversations have brought up so many issues around boundaries that this book just seemed like a very organic unfolding of the work that I was already doing. 
as a writer, I hear horror stories about the writing process. And I must say that not that this book wrote itself, but it was kind of like me releasing all of the things that I constantly say in my therapy sessions, adding a few new things, certainly rehashing some concepts I've explored, some stories I've experienced and, you know, people I've worked with. So it was just a natural process of this is what I'm supposed to be writing about. Yeah. And I, so the name just for, if this is the first time you're listening to this, the name of Nedra's book is called Set Boundaries, Find Peace. It's a guide to reclaiming yourself. And I find it to be such a powerful intention for people to have that that desire, right? To reclaim yourself because we're, we get so... We don't realize how much other people's belief systems have been embedded in our subconscious. And I really love that the way that you talk about that process and being able to reclaim yourself. So can you tell us why that's such a vital thing for us to experience, especially in this day and age? At our core, we already have boundaries. We typically know what we want and don't want. And much of my work is helping people express what they already know. As children, we are very comfortable saying, no, I don't want to. I don't like that. And adults and other things in the world sort of talk us out of what we're saying we want, what our expectations, our preferences are. They're saying, no, 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 you should do this thing. Just this week, I honored my daughter's boundary. She she doesn't like this coat that I have for her for some reason. It's just big, puffy. She's like, ah. So I honored that and I purchased her a different coat because Should we be forced to wear things that we do not like, do not feel comfortable if there's another option? Now, there are times where parents don't have the option to do that. But there are times where do we have to eat, you know, the macaroni? Do we have to give so-and-so a hug? Do we have to do blank? Do we have, like, what are these rules? Are they spirit breakers or are they spirit enhancers? And sometimes we are really talking kids out of standing up for themselves, being assertive, expressing what they like and don't like. You know, like you can have a preference. You could feel like, oh my gosh, my coat is too bubbled, right? Like I feel like a snowman in this coat. I would like something better. That is a preference. And when possible, we have the power to honor that. As adults in our relationships, if I don't want to eat some of your pie, when possible, please don't offer me the pie. When possible, please honor my boundaries. Yeah. Wow. It's to me, somebody could be listening or watching this and think, oh, that, of course, that makes so much sense. You know, why Why would we make a child do something, you know, or not honor that part of themselves? And I think that, you know, that's part of our conditioning and growing up and why we do things and later resent them because we're doing things that make us uncomfortable or we feel like we have to say yes all the time. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you is how do you think we should begin to discern that within ourselves 
for me, first of all, I think that this is a book that everybody should read, especially like young adults. I think this, you know, people would really benefit if I knew this information. Quiet reading. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, somebody that's, you know, maybe in their 30s or 40s now, like, how could they begin to discern what their own spirit enhancers or spirit breakers are? Mm. Our feelings. It's the same way that kids know. They know when they're frustrated, when they're uncomfortable, when they're anxious. And that's what they're expressing. I don't want to do this. I don't like this. I don't want to. We feel that too. We feel frustrated. We feel burnt out. We feel resentful. We feel so many different things. And yet we bypass those feelings and force ourselves to do stuff. We will force ourselves to work more and we're yawning and tired at 9 p.m. You know, we'll force ourselves to eat something that our coworker cooked that's disgusting because we don't want to hurt their feelings. We will force ourselves to give our friends once again advice on the same situation we tired of hearing. We will force ourselves we bypass any discomfort we have by force. Now you talk about willpower, the way we force ourselves to do things is the real willpower. And here we are, we can't stop smoking, we can't stop all this other stuff, but every day we willpower our ways through discomfort, doing things that we don't even wanna do. Thank you for saying that. I'm only gonna ask like my personal questions, now, like my own personal issues. With regard to social media, because that's my hardest my hardest encounter when it comes to boundaries, because as you're saying this again, it makes sense to me. I understand what you're saying and I am on board with it. Like I'll give you the example of Facebook. There's nothing about me going on Facebook that feels good to me. It Mm. physiologically irks me. I don't like going on there. It triggers me going on there to post or to respond. I just in my body, if I were to delete it and never see it again, I would be totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> I wouldn't have to see Facebook ever again in my entire life. So, mm-hmm. but but the the problem, I don't want to say the problem, but I know obviously I have a business and I have a large community on there that I don't interact with because everybody knows that I don't like being on there. But it it does feel like oh, but I have to do this. This is part of what I have to do. I have to be on social media. So how do I reconcile that? Mm. Well, I wonder why do you feel like you have to be in that space? Has it been a part of your success? Is it a part of your brand? Um, Are there other ways to achieve your goals without it? As you can tell, I'm a therapist. So all I have is questions. Yeah, no, that's so good. No, I just- questions to your question. Right. I I think it has in the past served my community because I do have a lot of listeners that there is like a page for the podcast and there's I have two people that moderate the page and so that I don't have to do it. But part of me just still feels a little bit beholden to having to be present somehow. Like I feel irresponsible if I'm not doing my job, right? Responding to people or having that presence because I feel like everybody else in my space does it. So I should be doing it too. 
Yeah. So I am more on Instagram. I have a community on, on Facebook, but I will be honest with you. Most of the things that go to Facebook are auto drafted from Instagram, right? I happen to like Instagram because I'm more of a picture based person. I don't like a lot of, which is weird because all of my content is words, but I like pictures. I love Pinterest, right? And so on Instagram, I set limits for myself by saying, I want to spend this amount of time in this space. This is my goal for today. Now, of course, I'm imperfect. Sometimes I, you know, don't meet the goal. I go over, I go under, whatever. I'm I'm a human. But ultimately, I know that there are things that I cannot do because I don't like to do them. Um, There are things that, Time won't permit me to do such as, you know, extensive commenting, responding to certain like DMs and this sort of thing that those are not spaces where I can always commit my time. There are times when I can and times when I cannot, but I actually don't mind doing most of the work. Now with Facebook, I will say that it is really important, especially if that's where your community is, to figure out what you do like to do. Maybe you don't like to comment. Perhaps you like to do, you know, lives more or you like to use their audio room feature or there are other ways to engage. And that's what I do. I do a lot of polling, live, all of that sort of stuff. So I hope people don't feel like they're not missing out by me not responding to the comments or me not responding to this other thing because I saw your question and guess what I did? I created a whole piece of content based on what you said, based on you saying, how do I get my brother to stop blank, blank, blank? Oh, five ways to get people to stop asking you questions you don't want to hear. And that is for the person who DM'd me asking me this question. But if I have 10 questions like that, guess what? It is more beneficial to respond to the community than to individually go in and write my same answer in different ways. And so that's what I choose to do because I want to support the community um, that I have in that space. And so it's really important to be clear about what your goals, goals are. And I believe in energetic boundaries. There are places where our energy is telling us like, no, 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 no. And we, again, we bypass it. We're like, no, no, I have to do this. I have to go to this thing. I have to invite this person over. And as you're doing it, you are just draining. You're like, why am I doing this? What am I doing? Why am I here? And we have to honor our energetic boundaries. And that energetic boundary is telling us, no, you don't like this. Stop. Why are you doing this? What other ways can we complete the mission without us doing the works, particularly on social media? If you don't like it, can we get a social media manager? Is there someone in place who can help you, someone who can mimic your voice in that space so you're not having to engage in a space where you don't want to? So it's about, you know, there are things that we like and things that we do not like, and it is okay to honor both. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's really great. Thank you so much. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was with regard to the vernacular we use in order to lovingly set a boundary with people that are, I call them energy vampires or like, you know, people that really just like to plug into your energy. I was hoping that you would share some 
ways that we could, I mean, right now that was really great. What you said, it's, Oh, this question, instead of answering it directly, I created a piece of content, you know, like the way that you articulated that was really, I felt like good. And that made me, I'm like, I could do that. That feels good. I Mm -hmm. can absolutely get on board with that. But when it comes to people that are energy vampires, what are some great ways to, you know, like talk to to people in your life that are those people so that they don't feel, you know, you don't add to their feeling bad? With people who deplete you, you have to determine how often, for what duration, and what you want to talk about. Those are the three ways to handle people who deplete your energy. I used to have a relationship with someone and everything I said they disagreed with. Oh my gosh, it's so cool outside today. It's warm to me. It's like, okay. You know, everything was a thing. It's like, all right. And so it got to the point where the conversation was me listening. How was your day? What do you have going on? And what are you doing after that? I didn't even want to contribute anymore because I don't I don't want to keep having these little tips about weather and restaurants. And, you know, I'm just checking in. Okay, bye. You can determine what the conversation is. Oftentimes we keep arguing with the person. We've argued with them for 42 years. Every time I talk to them, we argue, oh gosh, you didn't learn from last year. You didn't learn from the year before last month, yesterday. How can you protect your energy? How can you speak to people less frequently? I am often surprised by the amount of people we speak to daily, daily on the way to work, after work, after we have a big life event and we're like, oh, this person is terrible to talk to. But we pick up the phone and we call them. Yeah. We're calling them to deplete us. Why are we doing this? Can you imagine such a thing? Calling somebody to deplete you. So here's the thing. We get into patterns in our relationship, be it with our parents, siblings, friends, coworkers, whoever. And we just let the cycle go. We just let the pattern continue. Instead of saying, whoa, that didn't feel good. Let me try something else. When we find that something doesn't feel good, try something different. You don't have to keep making the same nasty dish. Use some different seasonings. Mix it up. You know, do something different with your chicken. If things aren't working, don't keep going with it. Try something even a tad bit different, a little less of this, a little more of that. We have to mix it up. Don't allow it to just be this. This is how it is. What can I do? Is it me? Am I reaching out to the person who is depleting me? Am I allowing the conversation to go in a direction that I don't want it to go in? Am I bringing up topics that's actually giving them energy to talk about things I don't want to talk about? Yeah. How am I contributing to my own pain in this situation? Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.